my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Listen every Thursday or join the conversation anytime on Instagram at What's Her Story Podcast. You probably know famed stylist Stacey London as co-host of TLC's hit makeover show, What Not to Wear, which landed her squarely in the heart of TV stardom. What you might not know is that she's now taking the middle-aged market by storm with her new company, The State of Menopause. You have said that what a person wears can be very symptomatic of what is going on with them. So what are you wearing? Right now I'm wearing actually a cool uh, turtleneck and it's not one of those Nora Ephron uh, moments of like, I hate my neck, so I'm trying to hide it. It's just, it's the comfiest shirt that I have and I love stripes. So I was like, I'm going to wear this today. It also kind of goes with my white streak in my hair somehow, strangely, navy and white, black and white. So yeah, that's what I'm wearing. Do you feel pressure when 
you're out and about, that you always have to be wearing the perfect thing or that everyone's, I mean, you were critiquing what people wore for so long on television. <laughs> it kind of puts you in this spot where you always have to be wearing the perfect thing. Yeah. I mean, look, I, you know, first of all, in terms of what not to wear or love, lust or run or any of the makeovers that I've done on any television show, you know, that's part of me. That's a persona. That's like, that came from years of, you know, being an assistant to some of the greatest fashion editors in the world. And then learning to work with real people on commercials, you know, not six foot tall, hundred pound models, but real people who were like in bank commercials or kids or men. And that was also part of my experience. So getting to what not to wear, really was a very interesting time for me, specifically because one, I didn't know it was going to be so popular and that people would start going like this with like a, you know, a, a super lens looking at whatever I was wearing to the point where I walked out of my house once to go to the gym and this woman sort of snapped her neck around and was like, you're not allowed to wear sweats. And I was like, <laughs> I'm going to the gym. So it's pretty appropriate, right? Like it does match the occasion. Unlike a lot of what, you know, people were wearing on the show. And the only thing that I would say is like, you know, look, what not to wear, we did critique, but I do like to think of it as constructive criticism, partly because it was like, we were never saying, wow, you look awful and leave it there, right? We were like, is this getting you where you want to be? Is this the most flattering for your body type? Let us show you some alternatives, right? Criticism is criticism if you're just saying, wow, you look lousy. But constructive criticism is when you're offering alternatives to, you know, whatever the present situation is. So yes, okay, to get back to your original question, I don't feel that kind of pressure anymore, right? I'm 52 years old. I've already done all of this. Clothing for me is much more about self-expression now than it has ever been. Let's get back to your story. So tell us about those early years, pre-what not to wear. You were working in the cutthroat world of, of magazines. What was that journey like for you? Well, you know, it was a very interesting one, right? I started my first job straight out of college was as an assistant at Vogue um, to both Phyllis Posnick and Andre Leontali, who just passed away. And it was a really interesting journey for me because, you know, I was 21 years old. I was kind of didn't know what I was getting myself into. I kind of got thrown, you know, it's like sink or swim with a bunch of sharks. But I always talk about it as military training. Like it was boot camp for life. The words impossible in 1991 did not exist. So whatever had to happen to make a shoot happen, to make a prop, to, you know, to find a prop or to fly a model from anywhere in the world to get her to a shoot on time, nothing mattered. Nothing was impossible. And for me, that was a great life lesson going forward is like, you know, when people sort of give you this attitude of like, nah, can't be done. That's the first thing you should uh, not accept as an answer, right? The minute somebody like poo-poos you is the minute you've got to dig in your heels and get done. I agree. And Amy agrees too. But now, Stacey, that you're a CEO, you realize that very, very few people you work with have that mentality. Yeah. And you know what? I actually try to surround myself with the people who do have that mentality. And not only that, I mean... Being a CEO is very different from being talent in the sense that I am always trying to find people who are smarter than me. I do not want to be the smartest person in the room. I didn't mind if I was the smartest person in the room while giving a talk on fashion, but not not as the CEO of a company. Uh-uh. Everybody who surrounds me has to be way smarter than I am. Like that's how things get done. Do you think in today's work environment and the way, you know, just the dynamic that we have today, like, could the Vogue you work out exist today? Does it exist today? No, it can't. 
And in fact, there are so many things about, um, you know, print magazines. I mean, there's so few of them, right? They all need digital platforms. Um, in a lot of ways, I think that print felt that it was so far superior. You know, when I left magazines to go into television, I can't tell you how many editors said, oh, I'm so I'm so sorry you couldn't make it in magazines. <laughs> and then yeah, I was like, oh, God, I mean, I'm really doing something wrong here. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe TV is the, really the wrong move only to find five years later that people were like desperate to get jobs like the one I had, right? All these editors suddenly realized like television was the place to be. And I will tell you that I completely miscalculated when I started to get much more success as I, you know, kept doing what not to wear, you know, then I started to do Oprah and the Today Show and Access Hollywood. And then I got, you know, I was a spokesperson for Pantene and Woolite and Dr. Scholl's and um, Lee Jeans. I mean, you know, it was it was pretty insane that meteoric rise, you know, to get to do all of these things. I wasn't paying attention in the rearview mirror to the fact that my agents were now starting to sign bloggers. And what did bloggers become? Influencers, right? I had no idea of what the digital revolution and the social media revolution was going to do, not just to my career, but the way that I was no longer viewed for having taken a chance on a new version of it, of the fashion industry to go from print to television. I really did not calculate how massive the jump from television to digital and social media platforms is going to be. I feel behind. I'm always behind when it comes to that stuff. Now I feel, I'm, I feel like I, I'm too old. How did it impact you? So post what not to wear, you, you know, walk out the door and what awaited you? Well, I spent a year developing a syndicated talk show that got bought but never made that was called The Find. And that was about, it was like um, sort of based on the idea of The View, right? Five different women, all of different ages, colors, sizes, all with different areas of specialty, right? So mine was fashion. We had somebody who was interiors. We had a finance person. But the idea was that it was a shopping show. And so everything that you saw on the show and everything we talked about was for sale and that you could buy it all on a second screen app. We developed that technology to do it. We were probably about 15 to 20 years too early. But now you see things like Talk Shop Live that are that are trying to recreate this television show. And that was actually one of the most disappointing things for me was that show, I think, had such potential and disappointed that everybody thought it was too complicated at that time. And then I went on to do Love Luster Run, which was very much about what we were just talking about, the disconnect between the way we see ourselves, our perception of ourselves, and the way that we are perceived by others. And is that message, is there a disconnect in that message? And how do we sort of write that connection in order for you to get what you want? So the example that I always use is of the suit, right? If you are going to interview for a very serious corporate banking job at an old heritage you know, banking firm, chances are you should wear the pinstripe suit. It's like, are you, are you projecting the image that you want in order to get what you want out of other people and your life? And, and I think that we, we tend to minimize how much that first visual impact has on the way that people perceive us. And now a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. 
I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Take us to 2016. What happened in your life? I I know that you hit a a financial speed bump. Oh, I hit so many speed bumps in 2016 and 2017. It's kind of, I don't even know where to start, right? Um, One of the things, and and I've gotten a lot of criticism for this, was that, you know, I wrote this article where I had wanted to talk about this kind of, this sense of falling from grace, right? Having been in the public eye and really having had quite a quick ascent in terms of being sort of a known personality in a way that I wasn't ready for, but sort of, you know, I always had this idea in the back of my head my career and my life was going to be linear, right? So I would get to this, I got to this stage in my career and I thought, I'll just stay there. I didn't know that, you know, audiences are fickle, that television executives are fickle, that people might stop thinking, wow, Stacy's the person we want. Look at this new cool girl that we want, right? It never occurred to me that I hadn't set myself up in a way that was allowing me to kind of have continued success, even if that success looked like something different, even if that success wasn't in television, even if that success was then to write a series of books, right? Or, or I, I've written a couple, but that I had could have made that my full-time occupation, or I could have done a podcast or any of the things that I sort of was like, no, no, I'm a television person. And I kept waiting for something to happen to me. I kept waiting for somebody to come to me to fix what I felt was sort of the loss of this career or that it was starting to fade. And nobody did, right? And so at the end of, I started to realize like, wow, I I have been spending money the way that I was making money, right? In in enough money to never really think, oh, I, I should be worrying about my finances. Now, that's not to say that I didn't save money. Of course I did. I was very smart when I was young. I got a good financial advisor. I've always invested and I believe very much in having financial independence. But I just didn't realize that everything sort of career-wise was going to get so fuzzy and blurry and complicated for me in a way that I couldn't see what the next step forward should be. So I wrote this article about the fact that, you know, I went to see my accountant who said to me, wow, if you don't really sort of course correct here, you are going to be broke eventually. Like you can't live like this forever. And it really struck me. Now, what I said in the next sentence of that article was, I don't mean broke, broke, right? But everybody really took issue with the fact that I'd said that my accountant said that I was going to go broke. But basically what he meant was you cannot live the lifestyle that you have been living for the last 15 years. And so for me, it was, again, another lesson that I needed to learn that sure, of course, in hindsight, I wish I'd learned earlier. But this idea that you can be very successful in your career and then there is, you know, you hit a certain age where there is the real potential for decrease in your earning potential, that you're not going to be able to sustain the same kind of income that you have for, you know, 
maybe your 30s and 40s. There are a lot of women who become much more successful and become, you know, they've been on the same track to get the corner office and, you know, retire or sit on boards or all of the things that we think that way, you know, way modern women of a certain age start to kind of become so respected or create uh, passive wealth for themselves. And I've never really thought about that because all of the things that I've ever done, I was hired to do right? I was, you know, work for hire. I didn't own anything. I wasn't making passive income from anything. I hadn't really thought that that was ever going to be necessary for me. So that was really uh, the first thing that I had to take stock of. One, how am I spending money? Two, how am I making money if I'm not the flavor of the month or the year or the decade anymore, right? Like, what does that look like for me? And that was also, you know, that was a big death of ego moment. I spent a lot of time, I wouldn't say that I've always been the most confident person in the world, but definitely when it came to my career, I felt like I was very good at what I did. And to kind of see that being taken away from me without having a say made me very angry. It made me feel like, you know, but I'm so good at this. I'm so talented. Everybody knows me for this, right? Um, So you got to kind of let your ego die in order to get past that. So then in 2016, you dealt with a massive spine surgery. What led to that? I mean, it could be argued my body fell apart because I'd just been going and going and going and going. I'd never stopped working. I was always in my head. I was never, never took care of myself physically. I would run in five inch high heels for 12 hours a day. You know, I wasn't taking care of my body in any way that that uh, would allow for me to recognize that something was really wrong until it was almost too late. So I had that massive spine surgery. And as I was recovering from that, which took about 18 months, you know, a lot of other things started to go wrong. I started to experience like very strange mood things and I attributed it all to the surgery right? When you have heart, brain, or spine surgery, uh, doctors will tell you that your body kind of goes into shock because it thinks it's going to die, right? My body doesn't know on any kind of cellular level that I decided to have that surgery, right? So your body is reacting in the way it would react as if you were in an accident or anything else. And I thought, oh, the first time I saw all that metal, all that foreign material in my body, I was terrified and not just terrified. I was anxious and moody. And I kept saying at the time, I feel like something is eating me alive from the inside. Ever since I saw that x-ray, I was so flipped out. And my brain started to do this kind of mental gymnastics where I was constantly trying to find reasons for things that felt really wrong to me. And I attributed everything to the surgery, that it was just physically traumatic. And therefore, it sort of triggered an emotional response, a physical response. Um, and, and, and really that there was a kind of grief in knowing that, you know, I'd gotten to this stage of my life and my body, you know, wasn't the, as strong as it used to be when I was young. There's a lot of saying goodbye, right, as we age. Um, and then I think as I really started to kind of feel stronger from that, I went through a lot of physical therapy. I felt, you know, physically stronger, mentally stronger. My dad got very sick and I spent the better part of 2018 taking care of him with my family until he passed away. And then I had a whole other set of symptoms that I thought was the physical manifestation of grief, food allergies, skin rashes, heart palpitations, all of these things that I attributed to 
the way that he had gotten sick. He had a heart disease and he would get skin rashes and he was, you know, having trouble keeping food down. And all of a sudden, so was I. I was like, since when am I allergic to salmon? And, you know, just these weird things. But in between those two years, I just thought, oh, this is the physical manifestation of like pain, anxiety, and fear, or the physical manifestation of grief. But I was actually experiencing perimenopause. And those two symptoms, I mean, those two, those two things that happened probably amplified my symptoms dramatically. But I didn't know anything about menopause. I, didn't, I thought it was optional. I didn't know it was coming for me. I didn't know what age you got it at. I didn't know anything about it. Amy, do you know what age menopause happens? So I know when my mom went through menopause, but that's really the only woman I've ever talked about it deeply with. Mm. We never talk about it. Like, I don't I don't know anything about it. I mean, I know it's coming. Like, you go down a roller coaster, but I don't know when that, that dip is hap- going to happen, right? Yeah, Amy is is right. I mean, the the clearest genetic predictor of when you'll have menopause is when your mom had it. Not everybody's mom is alive. My mom had a radical hysterectomy much younger than when she would have gone into chronological menopause. So, you know, I did not find, she didn't even really talk to me about it, right? I realized that, you know, most women don't talk about it. Most moms don't feel comfortable talking about it. It is the one stage of, you know, sort of female hormonal health that is not discussed as if it is some icky, dark, scary subject. And the only way to make things less icky and dark and scary is to shine a light on them. And once I realized that that's what I was dealing with, and once I realized that my doctors were actually not that helpful in this regard, I went, I went to my GP who's known me since I was 23 years old. And I was like, I feel crazy. Now I have night sweats, I have brain fog, I have insomnia, I have hot flashes, I have anxiety, I have depression, I have meno rage. I, I was like, of the 34 symptoms you can have, I think I had all 34 and then some. The muscle fatigue, the breast tenderness, the joint pain, the, the hair breakage, the skin like that felt like sandpaper. I was like, I don't look like myself, I don't feel like myself, help. And she said to me, well, you, you know, you have autoimmune diseases and I'm not going to recommend that you go on hormones. So, you know, you'll get through it. Well, how am I going to get through it? How, how do I get through it? I went to my gynecologist and she said to me, use it or lose it. When I was like, I don't want to, I don't feel comfortable having sex and sex is painful and I have no interest in sex. And she was like, yeah, use it or lose it. And I, what does that mean? And how are you helping me? And this is when I started to do my homework, right? Just about the same time this company called State of Menopause came to me and said, hey, will you be a beta tester for us? I was like, hell yes, I'll be a beta tester. I'm dying to know more about this. And that's when I started really doing my homework. There is not a ton of cohesive information for the average layperson out there about menopause, what it means, what it is, when it happens. And of the people who are willing to talk about it, most people want to talk to their friends. They don't even feel comfortable talking to their doctors. And part of the reason for that is doctors don't feel that comfortable talking about menopause. One in four does not feel comfortable about talking to menopause, to the issue of menopause with their uh, patients. And there's only two hours of menopause training in medical school. So of course, nobody knows about it. Of course, nobody wants to talk about it. And also, we think of menopause as this kind of like past your prime, I'm no longer fertile. And therefore, you know, there's something about this kind of moment that makes us less relevant and, and, you know, we start to feel invisible. And the two things that I certainly felt when I started to go through this was a loss of identity, you know, like, I don't look like myself, I don't feel like myself. 
and a loss of agency because I didn't know what to do about any of it. Nobody was giving me any answers or any help in a way that I found helpful to my situation. So when I started beta testing for this company, which started out just for menopausal skincare, but in four distinct categories, right? Cooling, which was clearly about hot flashes, hot flushes. Hydration, which was really about what kind of moisture does your skin need? What kind of ingredients does your skin need to kind of retain moisture and not feel so dry? Because your skin can get as dry as almost a pre-diabetic skin dryness, same kind of thing. Relief in terms of the kind of pain that you can experience, like joint pain, muscle fatigue, breast tenderness, and repair, like when your hair starts breaking or your nails get weak or things like that. That was just the tip of the iceberg, right? That's where we started. And I was a super noisy beta tester. You both know me. Like, I don't, I'm not quiet about my opinions. And so as a beta tester, I was like, listen, guys, this doesn't work. You, you, this cream isn't thick enough. This one isn't thin enough. If you're doing a cooling gel that you want to be hydrating, it also has to kind of have other benefits. Like, does it protect against cystic acne or pre-rosacea? Like, what are you doing? Look at all the issues that surround menopause. So when it came time for this company, which was making brands, right, like State of Menopause was a brand that they owned... Uh, they turned to, they wanted to turn into a tech company based on the kind of uh, custom platforms that they had made for these brands. They felt like that customizable platform was something that they thought they could, you know, just go ahead and sell to other companies. They wanted to find homes for the brands that they created. And the other brand was uh, Gen Z Play. It was genderless deodorant. And I was like, listen, I'm not, I, I don't know what to do with that. I, I use Old Spice or Secret or a natural, whatever I can find. Like I'm not, I'm not picky about deodorant, but I do care very much about state of, and not only do I care about it, I think that it is limited in its thinking to think that skincare is enough for a menopause product line. Why did I want to take it over when I knew one that I was you know, going to reposition it in the market, first of all, because I thought it was short-sighted to think about menopause as a beauty issue right? As a, this is a much bigger wellness personal care issue that requires a lot more product than maybe perhaps other verticals, because there is no such thing as a menopause vertical. There is no such thing in the market as a menopause aisle in your, in your pharmacy. There's no such thing as a menopause footprint in Ulta or Sephora or any of the other companies where you'd find product in that regard. So it was very important to me to think about what does a menopause ecosystem look like? How are we going to create proprietary product that actually really talks about symptomatic relief, acute symptomatic relief, as opposed to kind of long-term um, health plays that you're seeing a lot in supplements or in vitamins or, you know, daily, uh, you know, any anything from, you know, gummies to pills to, to any of that stuff, right? I was like, what do you grab for in the moment? That's what I want our, our company to be about. So I acquired the brand and really, you know, went about, took about a year to really understand, even after we did our soft launch, to understand the consumer behavior of this audience, to understand the needs of this audience, to understand the nuances around menopause, not just from a, a medical point of view, but from a naturopathic point of view, for people who can't take hormones or can't afford hormones or, or you know just don't want to take them because they 
just don't want to do that, right? Like, what are the other options available to us? Who else is in this market? What other companies are doing this kind of thing? And what I saw was not only an incredible opportunity financially, because the women of this age, if they are coming to it chronologically between 40 and 60, are breadwinners of their households. They are certainly the head of finances in their households. And they are not even being given information to help them make the right choices for themselves. So what I've come to learn about menopause is that it is actually, it is such a gift, right? It's not, and I don't want to be hokey. That's the last thing. I don't want to be cliche about this. It's a gift because yes, it's, it's you know, what is the alternative to getting older is like being in the ground, right? We, we're all lucky to be here. We're all lucky to be alive. But that doesn't mean that going into middle age and experiencing menopause chronologically between 40 and 60 isn't, e it's, it's not easy. It's hard. I'm never going to sugarcoat that. But, you, you know, it isn't hopeless and you aren't helpless. And I want to exist as a company to help you remind yourself that you have agency, that you have choices, that there is a proactive approach to this. And more importantly, that menopause actually should be seen not as an ending, but a beautiful biological failsafe that allows you to stop and think, hey, what am I doing with my life now? This is the middle of my life. I'm not dying at 50. We're not dying in childbirth, right? And we are living to be in our 80s and 90s. So if you're getting menopause around 48 to 52, you know, that's usually the general time that this is going to happen to you. This is an amazing opportunity for you to take stock of where you are in your life. We don't lead linear lives anymore. Do you want to pivot? Do you want a new career? Are you still raising your children or is it empty nest syndrome? Are you taking care of your parents in terms of elder care? Are your parents starting to die? This is a very, very loaded time. Middle age is not, you know, sort of the middle ages, but it is the middle of life. And you are stuck between kids and parents. You are at that moment where you're at the highest point of decreased earning potential. It's the highest rate of divorce. It's certainly Scientific American did a study that said the lowest point of happiness in a woman's life is between 45 and 55. That's not by accident. And that's not just because of menopause, but that's because of all the age adjacencies that go along with it. And now a quick break. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And talking about how we are living so much longer, 30, 40 years, like what do you envision your life will look like when you're 75? What I always saw when I turned 50 was I was like, I am going to take this decade to turn around the mindset that I've always had, the things that I've always looked to for external validation to make me feel like I was worthwhile. 
that I think a lot of us do, right? You know, in, in terms of codependence, it's called other esteem in, in terms of like codependency and psychology, that we define our own worth by allowing other people or other situations to define our identity. So self-worth really comes from peeling away all of what we consider to be external validation, getting the right job, being in the right place at the right time, having the right friends, knowing you know, what kind of influence we have, how we look, how much money we have, all of these things that are external markers of what we consider to be success instead of what do you know to be true about yourself? What do you love about yourself? And I thought, oh my God, this whole time that I've spent on my life waiting for somebody to tell me, I choose you, right? Whether it was my partner or a, a, a television channel or anything else in life. I was like, I'm going to take my 50s and I am going to change my entire mindset where I am the one who does the choosing. That my personal validation is going to come from me, not any external validation. And I am going to take this decade to prove to myself what I'm capable of doing. I don't know what that looks like yet, but that was the goal. That's the horizon for me. I said, by the time I get to 60, I'm not only going to have changed the way that I allow myself to interact with other people, it's going to be on my terms, whatever those terms look like as I evolve. So when you ask me what I think about 75, I actually can't wait. I don't know what it's going to look like. I just know that I will be infinitely more evolved in my thinking than I am right now. And I believe that I will be able to value time and my relationships and whatever work I'm doing even more because as we age, I think time becomes a commodity that's more and more valuable to us. You know, we have less of it to play with. And so by the time I'm 75, I want to be living uh, my life out loud but I also want to be doing it on my own terms. You've evolved so much professionally in the last 30 years. How have your romantic relationships evolved? Oh, I mean, that's something I talk about all the time, right? I um, dated men, you know, all of my life. And, and then I was incredibly lucky in 2018 to meet my girlfriend, who, you know, now we've been together almost three and a half years. And I don't know what took me so long. <laughs> I mean, frankly, I wouldn't say that it was like, oh, you know, it's about being straight or being gay or identifying in any particular way. It's that I fell in love with the best person that I've ever met in my life. And I can't, I can't begin to say what that means, right? I think all of us, when we meet our person, no. In fact, I didn't even know if I knew right away because I was like, oh my God, I'm questioning myself. Is this like a fad? Is this, you know, what is it that I'm doing here? How am I experiencing these feelings? And it's part of the reason that even, you know, even in 2018, when I hadn't been doing television as regularly, like, you know, I wasn't coming into your living rooms every Friday night anymore. I really wanted to be very careful in the way in which I started to talk about my relationship with Kat because I wanted us to keep it private, not out of any kind of shame. I don't believe in that. But what I did believe was that it would be foolish to be like, I am dating a woman only to turn around and be like, well, it was a relationship that was nascent that then didn't work out, right? Like why, why go public with something that, that would clearly make such a big splash if I wasn't really sure of what I was doing? And, you know, the great thing about it was that when I 
we, and, you know, we sort of made a conscious decision, both of us to say, okay, it's time. I started to see, you know, lots of whisperings on, on social media about, you know, does Stacey have a really hot girlfriend? And I was like, yeah, I do. But I want to control the narrative. Again, same thing, the way I talk about style, I want to be the one controlling the narrative about what my life looks like and how I'm presenting that to other people. And that's when I announced it on, I think it was the last day of 2019. Yeah, Kat's here, so I'm asking her. You know, it had been a year that we had been together. And, you know, I just said, you know, hey, I've seen seen the gossip, and I'm going to set you straight. Not that it's any of your business, but now that I see that other people are talking about it, it's time that I talk about it. And I also recognized that it was, very easy for me to do this. It was very easy for me to say, I fell in love with this person. I know that I am a white woman of privilege and I don't have an employer. You do, you can't fire me. What is it? You're going to, you're going to unfollow me. I don't give a shit. You know what I mean? Like those are, there were, there were no consequences. My family loves Kat more than they love me. Like nobody <laughs> shunned us. Nobody, you know, my dog is no longer my dog. Like she loves Kat more than me. Like, I just have come to terms with the fact that people like Cap more than me. That's it. I'm over it. It took me a second, but I'm fine with it. And the the bigger issue was that I just recognized that there were no true consequences in the way that the people who have had to fight to be who they are, I only stand on their shoulders. And I am very careful about um, constantly repeating that because the people whose families abandoned them and the people who are not allowed to be who they were or were, you know, violence was committed against them because of who they were. That is not the position that I have been in. I have been in a position only to celebrate my love. And it, it really reminds me how many people came before me that fought for my right to be able to do that with no consequence. Stacey, I have to ask, I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners want to know how you and Kat met and fell in love. We met through a mutual friend who brought Kat to a fundraiser that I did with Elisa Reiner, who is an amazing actress and a friend, that we threw a fundraiser for Cynthia Nixon when she was running for governor. And Kat came, and I, I, I really, I, I feel very strongly about this recollection. I, right, babe, you, you agree with me on this one. Um, we met, our friend introduced us, and we shook hands. And Kat held on to my hand, and the first thing she ever said to me was, oh, wow, you're so beautiful. And I remember thinking, oh, it's on. It's on. Like, whatever this is, whatever this is, it's on. Um, And we didn't have our first date for a while. And also, I met Kat when my dad was really, really sick. And one of the first things that I said to her was, you know, I am happy to make plans, but there's only a 50% chance on any given day that I will actually be able to come to them, right? You know, I'm so honored to be invited to anything, but the fact is that if my dad needs me, I have to go there. So I sometimes I'm going to cancel last minute. And I, and I said that to all of my friends. I really tried to be as open and honest about what was going on with me at that time as possible. And Kat and I got to hang out a few times. But then I remember we, we spent the marathon day together, which was November 3rd, right, that year? The 3rd. I think it was the 3rd. I, I'm asking Kat for confirmation here. But um, I think it was November 3rd. Our friend, our mutual friend who, who had introduced us was running in the marathon. I have great friends who throw a marathon party every year that I always go to because the marathon is one of the most joyous days in New York City, in my opinion. So we spent the day together. 
and we had the best day. Like we saw our friend, we like high-fived her when she was running the marathon. We hung out, we had a great time, walked home together. And Kat had said to me on the third, hey, my birthday is November 9th. I would love for you to come to my birthday dinner. And I said, I would love to. And that day I had to call her and say, my dad is sick and I, I can't come. And one of the saddest and most poignant things I think about our relationship was that my dad died the next day. He died on November 10th. And not only did Kat come to the funeral, which like completely blew my head off. She never got to meet my dad, which is like one of the greatest regrets of my life. But I also knew that I was like dealing with incredibly kind individual, somebody who would show up for me without really knowing me or knowing where our relationship was going to go. Um, to be supportive in that way was really, really remarkable. Sorry, I'm crying. Amy and I are both crying, which is very rare that we both cry at the same time. <laughs> Usually it's just one of us. It's so sweet. Um, and, and bizarrely, Amy, don't you agree? Like we've had a lot of guests on our show fall in love with women after years of dating men. It's it's something about our show or the guests we choose. Yeah, we actually talk about it. Yeah. Is it really? That's like, I, I actually, I love that. I really think there is something to that, you know, this idea in midlife, also feeling more free. So the idea that, you know, after dating men for, you know, decades, that I would fall in love with a woman and feel more loved and seen than I ever have in my life, you know, really is just one of the happiest circumstances that's come out of of my journey. So Stacey, we're going to go to the speed round now where we're just going to ask you quick questions and you give us quick answers. Amy, do you want to try to start? Stacey, what book are you reading right now? It's called Bending Reality, How to Make the Impossible Probable by Victoria Song. And this was just given to me by a really good close friend. And what show are you binging right now? Ozark. What is your morning routine? Well, it's really interesting that you say that because I've just changed my morning routine. Usually it would be that I would stay in bed, get my phone, read the news, get depressed, and then get up. And now both Kat and I, I would just be like, oh God, another another day in hell. But now I get up, I try to breathe or meditate for five minutes, five, 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 right? I'm not trying to do, I'm not, I used to do Vedic meditation, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. That doesn't feel doable for me right now as the CEO of a startup. I am, I am a busy lady. So I try to do five minutes of breathing or meditating, five minutes of writing in my journal, five minutes of reading a book that matters to me, that that fills me. And then I'll read the news and then I get to work. We can't end without talking about your hair. Tell us <laughs> about, you know, you're, you were the face of Pantene. You were no for, known for that gray streak in your hair. Tell us about your hair today and what it takes to maintain it. Well, I don't do anything to maintain it. I'm not going to lie. You know, it's this, my, my gray streak is obviously I have a lot more gray than I used to, but I've had it since I was about 11 and a half. So I've never, ever considered getting rid of it. In fact, part of my Pantene contract, I, I was like, you can cut my hair, you can style my hair, but you cannot dye my gray streak. Like that will never happen. And they were fine with that. But, you know, part of it was that I've never associated it with age. I was like, I am like a cartoon character. I'm like Cruella DeVille. I'm like Rogue from X-Men. Well, Lou has been listening to our whole interview, and he always comes in with the final and usually the best question from the male perspective. Oh, bring it. I, I got this idea that every time somebody is talking, you get a chance to, to actually hear what they're thinking. So I get a chance to get inside your head. And you have a lot... 
going on up there? <laughs> <laughs> let me t- I just let, let me just say uh, two things about that. One, um, I did go to Vassar for philosophy, um, psychology, and literature. So you know, again, yeah, I, I, I'm, I definitely like thinking. But also, I'm in Gemini. So there are a lot of me in here and we're all doing a lot of thinking at the same time. It's like why I don't have a favorite color because none of us in here can decide. <laughs> so that's how I think about it. Awesome. There's a lot go- there's a lot going uh, on in here. That's incredible. But one of the one of the answers, well actually, and you kinda you kinda did a great way of segueing into it. When you started talking about menopause, I was like, what the f- what the-? I was it it was very fascinating. And now I got some some YouTube videos to look at, right? Um, but I was just thinking, damn, women go through some shit. <laughs> I was just in my heart, like, like uh, that's it. I'm sorry, but yeah. Yeah, no, no, you know, <laughs> actually, ahead. it's really interesting that you say that because I think that in a lot of ways, um, you know, I've I've started writing a kind of a menopause memoir, and I'm just going to share with you what I'm thinking about calling it right now, right? Which is hysterical. And part of the reason is that we are constantly, women are constantly being accused of being hysterical, right? And there's something incredibly funny about that to me. But what that is truly based on, right, is that through this kind of patriarchal lens, where just physiologically, men's hormones don't fluctuate as much or in the same way over our lifespans, the way uh, women's uh, hormones do physiologically, we have decided, we have placed a value judgment on hormonal fluctuation as more hormonal fluctuation is bad and less hormonal fluctuation is good. And that somehow being, you know, more hormonally um, challenged in terms of that fluctuation, right, and, and not being so rigid, somehow has given people permission to say, well, you're hysterical, you're being hysterical. And I'm like, that's not what it is at all. It's that women's physiology is not understood well enough for us to really understand why hormonal changes create a ripple effect in the way that we behave, in the way that we're seen, in the way that, you know, nobody understands female reproductive health in the way that we should, because it isn't just about reproduction, it's about hormones. So for me, this idea that women are hysterical is such a bunch of shit. How can a man support a woman in their lives that are going through these transitional phases of premenopausal, menopausal, and then postmenopausal? Oh, Okay, first of all, Lou, I mean, really, yes, let's see, can we just all clap and be like, that's a, that's a, it's such, such an incredible question. And it is actually one of the pillars that I talk about when I talk about my brand, which is called State of Menopause, right? There are certain things that this brand and the mission that we have is to do. And, you know, I would say it's destigmatized for sure, right? We want to destigmatize menopause so people are just not afraid of it, right? In the same way. We want to contextualize it so that you understand that menopause is not this final frontier. We want to contextualize it in the lifespan of hormonal health, right? So that you understand why um, it belongs in the conversation at every stage of life, that this is something you should know and expect before it happens. We want to normalize that conversation. And when I say normalize it, that's different than destigmatizing it. That means it should be very easy for you to find care practitioners and doctors that are willing to kind of talk you through it. But even more importantly, friends, significant others, partners, kids, all of your family members and friends, really to kind of have that communication open so that you can ask for the help that you need. Well, 
you know, going through some issues that may actually be quite stressful. And, you know, men understand andropause, right, which is a lot less complicated. There are really only two symptoms that surround it. It's erectile dysfunction and hair loss. And, you know, we joke around, what do men do when they're having a midlife crisis? They like take Rogaine and and Viagra, get a sports car and a younger girlfriend. But like we have 34 symptoms at the same time. And yet it's the highest rate of divorce for us. We're not having, yeah, we're, you know, we're perceived as having a midlife crisis and that we have to white knuckle through it instead of actually being able to get to the other side and have a midlife renaissance. And that's where men can truly be helpful, where we can, men and women both, but should be able to look at aging as in a really proactive, positive way that women should be allowed to age, that we should be loved for being allowed to age, that having wrinkles and, you know, not having the same body you had at 25 does not make you less attractive or appealing. And men need to remember that that is actually something that that matters in the way that we talk about this and that we should be afforded the same kind of respect at any age. Well, that's a hard interview to sum up. So Stacy is so many different things. And I think, you know, I was super fascinated to hear her conversations on middle age and menopause because it really is like once you start thinking about it, like this is something literally every woman goes through and we just don't talk about it. Um, but I wish we'd gotten to dive more into her childhood. Yeah, I think that um, Stacy, you know, she grew up in New York City. She like I did. And she definitely has kind of like a tough city girl mentality, which I think actually is the thread that took her from being this like fashion icon who strongly stated their opinion, but also was beloved by her fans to now almost becoming an advocate for middle-aged women to say the rest of your life is going to be the best of your life. And I love that. And I I sort of, I'm excited. She makes me excited about menopause. I know that sounds ridiculous, but like (laughs) she does make it seem super fun. I mean, she like met the love of her life after she went into menopause, you know, not like, not like I'm like, bring it on. But I'm just saying like, she does make it seem like, you know, the fifties are awesome. Yeah. And, but like, maybe that is like her continuation of that kind of tough girl thread, Sam, right? Of like reimagining what we've been told is like, frankly, kind of like the end for women. Like we just don't even really talk. Now we do. But maybe like 20 years ago, a woman who's over 50, you're like, eh. But now it's like we have decades of our career left, a new love life, like all of these things. Yeah. I think that, you know, I I keep saying I'm turning 50 this year and I was excited to throw a glass half full party because I feel like I've halfway through my life and everyone's like, that's so optimistic. I'm like, but don't you all think you're going to live to 100? Like, I just always assume that. But now with COVID, my, my plans are delayed. <laughs> so maybe it'll be a 51-year-old party. But I do think that the more people that talk about things like aging in such a positive way, the more resources we'll have and the stronger we'll feel when we get to that that point. So kudos to Stacey and um, – she has a lot to say. I feel like we could have heard from her for hours longer. Completely. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would appreciate it if you leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para and our male perspective, Lou Burns. 